So as an expat, um, everyone keeps saying to me, you've come at such an amazing time. Um, it's really changed over the past 18 months and you're getting to see and live those changes on a day-to-day -day basis. So for me, uh, I moved here in June. I didn't have to have a companion um, uh, with me or a chaperone. Um, I was able to travel alone and I, I'm not married. Uh, so that wouldn't have been allowed um, five years ago. I would have had to find uh, a male colleague to have been my chaperone. And I may have even had to have had permission from my father to travel here. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we speak with an exceptional young woman, proud servant to the community, passionate advocate, and has been known as a skateboarding solicitor. She studied a Bachelor of Laws, Bachelor of Arts, Politics and Public Policy at Griffith University, and a Master of Laws at the University of Queensland. As a passionate lawyer, she has remained connected to education as a guest lecturer in sports and negligence, as well as social media and ethics at the University of Queensland, University of the Sunshine Coast, and Griffith University. Her career as a lawyer commenced at Butler McDermott Lawyers, Tress Cox Lawyers, Clayton Utes, before becoming a senior associate in sports and corporate risk at Minter Allison. Since June 2019, she has lived in Saudi Arabia as a regulation legal manager for sports, entertainment, and events at the Royal Commission of Al-Allah for the Al-Riyadh Governor. Our guest's passion for sport has led to governance roles at the Sunshine Coast Girls Board Riders Club, Squash Australia, Brisbane Heat, Surf Rider Foundation Australia, and Football Victoria. She is also the immediate past president of Women Lawyers Association of Queensland. I'm privileged to introduce to you a sought-after keynote speaker, commentator on women in sport, and is the founder of the Prominenti Society, a speaker platform featuring only female speakers worldwide, Cassandra Hilbron. Cassandra, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. That was an amazing introduction. I really appreciate it, Craig. Oh, you're welcome. You've had a great career and you do a lot for the community. Yes, it's, um, it's, it's weird when you actually hear your biography read out. It's like, oh, oh yeah, I did that. That's right. That's, yeah, that's that's kind of cool. <laughs> so you grew up in Bundaberg in a low socioeconomic area in Australia with two sisters. You know, what was life like growing up in a rural area coming from a very humble beginning? Uh, looking back, um, I mean, at the time as a kid, you, you don't know what you don't have. You don't know um, really, I guess, what the meaning of life is or the fact that a friend might be getting dropped to school, you know, in a Mercedes Benz or, you know, these types of things. You're just living life. You're just doing what you need to do. And when I look back, we had everything we needed at the time, you know, my dad was absolutely amazing, um, always providing and supporting us. I had a great group of friends. Um, I had so many, I, I would now call them mentors. Um, and 
having that at such a young age, I probably wouldn't have had that had I been growing up in a city environment. Um, I, I always say, you know, I would never have stayed in Bundaberg and I didn't pass age 17, but I really do enjoy going back. I just have a completely different lifestyle now. So sport has been a major part of your life. What did sports teach you as a child and what lessons has sport provided you that has enabled you to have a successful legal career? Um, Well, I guess as a kid, I started playing hockey when I was four. And that's because I was told by the ballet coach um, not to return because I wasn't graceful enough um, to be a ballerina. So my, my dad put me in hockey and I played that at such a young age. And I guess that's when I got my exposure to, um, I guess, being on my own. Um, and having to interact with older people. So I'd go down to the hockey fields of a weekend um, and I'd have to make friends, um, you know, just get by. I remember one time I had my head split open um, and Dad wasn't there at the time, so the St. John's Ambulance just stapled my head. And now as a lawyer, I'm like, there was no consent in that. (laughs) Um, But I guess it was just learning from a young age to trust your gut. Um, when they're saying, you know, we need to staple your head when you're seven years of age, um, having to say that's okay because I knew in my gut that was the right thing. And when I look at my role now as a lawyer, but then with board positions and leadership roles, so much of it comes from sport, the teamwork, the strategic analysis, learning how to use the rules, play the field to your advantage. Um, But most of all, meeting people and learning how to adapt to their personalities to make, you know, to reach the end goal, not just to reach, you know, my purpose. So you left home at 17 years old and you went to become a lawyer. What was the backup plan if you weren't successful in your dream to become a lawyer? So I wanted to become a mechanic. Um, my granddad is a diesel mechanic. Um, my dad's not one by trade, but he's one of those people who can listen to a car and just tell you everything that's wrong with it. So from a young age, um, because I'm one of three girls, I guess I was probably more of the tomboy in some respects. Uh, so I just enjoyed, I guess, fiddling with things. And, um, that was always the backup plan. I don't know how I would have gone as a mechanic if I would have lasted, but (laughs) It sounds fun in theory. <laughs> so it seems like your dad has had a major influence on your life. What values and messages did he share that are essential to your career and the way you live? Oh, that's really hard because there's so many. Um, he is always a big believer in say what you mean and then act as you know what as what you're saying. Um, you know, don't ever lie, don't beat around the bush and just be completely transparent. Um, but that's also taught me a number of other lessons because I've seen, I've seen how that has been almost um, a downfall or caused some difficulties with my father because people um, taking advantage of his good nature um, and things like that. So there's all these life lessons as a kid, you don't actually realise that you're learning them um, at the time, but just later on in life, absolutely brilliant to be able to know how to deal with a certain situation. So so you're a firm believer that history does not define your circumstances. So so can you elaborate on what this means for you? So um, for university, it's especially when I went, so I 
started in 2002, a lot of the conversations were about what school you went to. I mean, that's a very Brisbane thing anyway. Uh, but there was always, oh, my father does this, my father does that. Um, my father's at these chambers. Um, my mother's a secretary at this firm. So it was really concentrated on what your parents did and that almost defined you as a law student. And I was, well, my father's a commercial fisherman. But, you know, you look at his office, it's the Pacific Ocean on a daily basis, um, getting to do what he loves. But I realized a lot of these, um, my, my peers that I went to, to university with, a lot of them didn't actually end up practicing as lawyers. It was a really high percentage. And I, I kind of reflected on it for two reasons. First being, it seems as though they did law because their parents expected them to. And secondly, they would have taken the place of someone who really, really wanted to be a lawyer but might have been, you know, of the average average marks to get in. So from my point of view and when I look at, because um, I was in a top-tier firm in Australia, when I look at my, my colleagues around me, a lot of them now these days don't have the historical legal family backgrounds. We, always, we, we can look at... Um, our Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia. It's our first female Chief Justice, Susan Kiefel. She left high school um, after grade 10, I believe, and then worked as a legal secretary. And now she's the first female Chief Justice. So I'm just always, especially through my experience, I believe that no matter what happened or what your parents do, where you started as a kid, the world, to use an absolute cliche, the world is your oyster. You can, you can absolutely go anywhere. And I guess Australia is lucky for that. We've got so many programs to help people through university and TAFE. So opportunities are endless. You kind of feel like that your dad being a commercial fisherman and having that beautiful place to, to work on every single day means that you don't take things for granted right that you appreciate the small things in life and and being being a lot more open that's it that's it so what what was your motivation to becoming a lawyer uh if i'm being completely honest eight years of age i decided i wanted to be a lawyer I had a deal with the local library that if i volunteered for an hour a week usually after hockey on a saturday i had first dibs of um the first Sweet Valley High books that came out. Bearing in mind, I was eight years old. So <laughs> my, my, my taste soon developed from Sweet Valley High. But um, it uh, part of my job was rearranging all the books and putting them back um, in the catalogue order. So I was exposed to these books that I wouldn't have otherwise read as a, you know, a kid walking into a, a town library. And I remember I was probably, I was in grade five, so I was nine years of age, and there was a book about JFK and the Bay of Pigs disaster in Cuba. And I read it. I didn't understand a lot of the words or the political meanings behind it, but I started to look in more to the Kennedy family, and I just became absolutely obsessed with law and politics. So I w decided I wanted to be a lawyer, but I also figured that was my ticket out of Bundaberg. There was no university there at the time and certainly no law school. So I could run off and live this amazing life. Um, and law was my ticket to that. And so in, in law, you've kind of, I suppose, transitioned, not transitioned, or, or kind of moved your focus in towards sport and sponsorship and social media. What's the attraction around those for you? 
Oh, um, I guess because I've been involved sport from a personal perspective from a young age, um, just realizing that there is, I guess, a specialized market there. You can't deal with sports contracts and sports agreements how you would a commercial contract. Um, so when I'm dealing with my clients, I'm, I'd like to think that I could bring you know, a more of an understanding of their business as opposed to just a straight corporate transaction. Um, and I mean, it's the, the sports industry in Australia, while there's money um, in sport, it's not like, say, the US or Europe where that we're talking billions of dollars. So our contracts are a, a lot, lot different um, to what I deal with on an international scale. But the social media work came around um, through a previous firm about 10 years ago now. Um, Twitter had just started being used and they encouraged me to start using it as a platform um, for branding purposes and sending a message about certain legal topics. Um, so I started to use that to develop clients uh, meet new clients and kind of build an online profile and that led to all the lecturing on social media and ethics being able to talk about the pitfalls and what we should avoid doing as a lawyer what things we may inadvertently be doing to create a legal relationship and things like that so it's um, I've been able to tie it in and I just feel really fortunate that I can do areas of law that I find so fascinating but just open up the whole world um, to my practice. So obviously that social media has been a huge sort of area for CEOs of sport organizations and businesses to, to kind of be aware of over the last sort of few years. What do you see as kind of the next step or that next big challenge that sports are facing? Oh, if I look at Australia, um, I think there's a lot of governance issues that need to be addressed. We have okay to good governance in sports. We've got certain requirements, but I think Australia could do a lot more, um, particularly with the matters I see, the stories I hear and what I've been involved in. Um, a lot can be done to improve that. The government is um, has released its recommendations from the Woods Inquiry, so the National Integrity Sports Commission. I'm not sure of the exact name that they're going to be using um, uh, for it but hopefully that will start the conversation more about integrity um, I know they're not concentrating on governance in that but if we put it at the forefront hopefully we'll start to see a shift but I think in the next five six years hopefully sooner there'll be a hopefully a massive um, change in governance principles for sporting organizations yeah it's really important so just going back to that social media a little bit it it has become quite challenging for people to manage their personal views and activities with their work policies, procedures, and expected behaviors. How can CEOs and leaders really effectively manage this with their staff, um, whether it be in a business setting or in a sport setting with athletes? So it's always to have a policy. That's the number one thing with um, managing staff. And I mean, players are employees as well, so we can include them in that catch-all. Um, the, it's all well and good to have a policy, but you need to educate. So a lot of what I did included um, running seminars or workshops with the players, but more of a practical, fun perspective, um, how to not respond to, I guess they say, the sliding into the DM messages from 
you know, the, the females that they may meet on a night out, how to the deal with any harassment, um, but also making sure that they're protecting their image and realising that they do have a public profile and a role to play and that role is dependent on sponsorship money. So yes. they must apply the values. Yeah, so we've obviously seen a very interesting uh, development over the weekend where we had the Australian swimmer who's tested positive. Um, she, obviously their agreement between ASADA and, which is the Australian Anti-Doping Authority and Swimming Australia was that only ASADA or only the athlete could release that information. And, you know, that's obviously a massive burden for someone that's sitting in that position for an athlete to then come out and have to put that in the way they did, which was on Instagram and to be able to put themselves in a very uncomfortable and confronting way this is a, a huge um, challenging space for for athletes these days there's a lot of pressures on them anyway but that whole social media and and having to be open um, is quite difficult isn't it yeah i always say especially when i'm talking to the lawyers about social media um we're all entitled to a private life but with social media they're there may almost be no private life. Mm. If you are out on Eagle Street having a few drinks after work and you start to play up, you have to expect that it will end up somewhere. Um, that's just the world we live in now. During your early years as a lawyer, what, what were the major barriers you found yourself overcoming? Well, to be completely honest, um, probably myself was a, a major barrier, just not knowing how to deal with um, law from such a, being a lawyer from such a young age, I was 22, 23 working as a criminal lawyer and plaintiff personal injury. So I'm dealing with people who have had horrific workplace accidents or motor vehicle accidents from a young age. Um, but I really didn't know how to handle life myself. Um, so I, um, enlisted a business coach from a young age to get through that, uh, just to help me with certain mannerisms, how to respond to certain situations. And that's uh, that's really helped. If I look broader, um, a lot of people my level of seniority and age would probably say or have a story about, you know, that one particular male partner um, that did something or used to um, put them down or really restricted their movement. And I can honestly say that I've, I've never experienced that at all. As I have... Um, I guess, moved through the ranks and moved into more leadership roles outside of um, law, the problems I've faced have been from other senior females. Not all of them, but it's almost the mentality that, um, well, I had it tough, so you have it tough as well, whereas they've made life easier for me through you know, their experiences and what they've done in, in law. So it's up to me to make it easier for the next generation. So eventually it would just be be easy and um dr kirsten ferguson she's uh been an amazing woman to talk to about this sort of stuff she always says you know you just cast your net and then pick up everyone on the way down um but unfortunately it's not always like that um with senior some senior executives and senior women it's an interesting insight there mm. your passion for gender diversity and helping young women is to be really applauded what drives you to empower women to step out of the, the, the family comfort zone? Oh, I, it's, I guess it's just another thing I fell into. When I look back at my um, childhood, 
I did things like um, the Tiny Tots quest for the Endeavour Foundation, which included, you know, raising money for vulnerable and disabled people. I did my debutante ball, um, being a small town, but it was to raise money for the Leukemia Foundation. Um, but embedded in all that was also helping um, younger girls with their confidence and public speaking. When I went to university, I ran courses with some um, Asian students that lived in my complex uh, to help them develop their skills and um, their, I guess, their positioning. I, I guess it's skills I've learned at a young age but just developed as I grew older. And with Women Lawyers Queensland, um, I almost fell into the, the role as I started out as secretary. Once I started doing more, I realized through my business coaching experience, so the coaching I had received, I could pass that on to other people. And it was little things like um, one one junior lawyer kept baking peanut butter cups for the male partner because he knew she knew that he loved them. But he started to see her as a daughter or almost as um, like an assistant because she was taking on that the traditional role of providing um, home-baked goods that a, you know, a housewife might do. So I was able to help her change her, I guess, her position, um, stop baking for him um, and start to be respected more as a lawyer. And it's just grown from there and I absolutely love doing it. I started running an Instagram page on Career Girl Inspo, just sharing different tips and tricks and the response was I just loved seeing how people were, oh, we did that today. It was you know, we, we just cha- we stopped saying sorry. Um, we said thank you for waiting for me instead of sorry I'm late. Uh, and just watching their positions change in organisations just gives me a massive, oh, this is so good. <laughs> Beautiful. So, so you've recently moved to um, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia to become a regulation legal manager at the Royal Commission for Al-Ula. What an incredible opportunity and responsibility to oversee the drafting implementation of legalization, sports, entertainment and events in Saudi Arabia. What does your role entail? Uh, essentially, um, brief. so I've got um, what are, two areas. I'm doing the sports events and entertainment. And since I've been here, I've picked up um, foreign investment and corporation. So, uh, I'm doing two big areas for Saudi. Um, I'm briefing firms worldwide, choosing the best uh, to draft regulations in that the, in those subject areas. And what we'll be doing is applying those regulations in Al-Ula and um, it's all part of the Saudi government's 2030 vision. And hopefully uh, there's a couple of other projects going on at the moment. There's NEOM and then the Red Sea project there's more projects to be announced. So what I'm hoping is that these regulations that we're drafting in these areas um, to, to regulate sports, to regulate entertainment, um, to look at theatres and cinemas, uh, but also foreign investment can be used by the new projects that will be starting in Saudi Arabia. So there's a massive mind shift there. I, I lived there back in 2012 and at that time, you know, females and males are very segregated. You, there were no sort of real community events or communal gatherings really um, encouraged or allowed. So, so that shift now is, is having a massive change on the way 
the Saudi woman approach their lives. What sort of things are you seeing there now? So as an expat, um, everyone keeps saying to me, you've come at such an amazing time. Um, It's really changed over the past 18 months and you're getting to see and live those changes on a day-to-day basis. So for me, uh, I moved here in June. I didn't have to have a companion um, uh, with me or a chaperone. Um, I was able to travel alone and I'm not married. uh, So that wouldn't have been allowed um, five years ago, I would have had to find uh, a male colleague to have been my chaperone. And I may have even had to have had permission from my father to travel here. Um, don't have to do that now. I'm living life um, as I would in Australia with two main differences. There's uh, no alcohol. It's a, it's a dry country. Uh, the second thing is in public, I need to wear an abaya, which is the long dress. But even then, it's it's changed now. Um, the rules about it, the colours, um, things like that. So I should say the third thing is the heat. It's really hot. It's really I, I always and I, I do love the heat, um, but this is another level hot here. <laughs> so you know, for me, I remember sort of last year when they announced that females could drive and. You know, for me, yes, there's the great part for the females and having their empowerment and their their ability to go out and do things. But for me, it was that big change from um, the young kids that used to drive the mums at 12, 13 years old because their fathers were overseas or they might have been sick. So to me, that that whole safety and that responsibility from a family point of view has really shifted. Yeah, and um, I mean, the... I think it's Riyadh has the highest traffic accidents worldwide or the near highest and that's been a shock for me, just the way people drive here. Um, so I think not having the, the young kids on the street driving might be a good thing because, um, yeah, the fatalities here, oh, they have been pretty high. So, And I've spoken to a couple of women um, who have got their licenses and um, similarly I've spoken to a lot of Uber drivers um, over here and they say when they see a female driving, they always make sure that, you know, she's, you know, not being tailgated and is able to change lanes easy and things like that. So everyone's everyone's really welcoming um, it all. I heard there was some um, some people giving out roses to women when they started driving. <laughs> on the first day as they were entering um, diplomatic quarter. So it's been welcomed by all, it seems. So, so for you, what are the key areas of cultural and societal awareness you need to be conscious of when sort of that trailblazing an important policy that changes the way of life for people in Saudi Arabia? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I need to be aware of is, um, so some restaurants still have the singles and families. Um, I'm single. I'm not a family, but I enter the families one because singles means men. Um, I did have an incident last week where I entered a Starbucks in the singles one. Um, I couldn't find any signs, so I thought it was a mixed one. And everyone was really great. The the men in there, they're like, "Oh no, you're around the corner. Um, you know, the, the door's there." And they they actually took me around and showed me, which was really good. So I just have to uh, be conscious of that when I walk into to restaurants. Um, the other thing is gyms. So at some hotels, I just can't walk into the um, a gym because they are still segregated. But um, in saying that, a lot of them are um, mixed gender now. So it's 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 all um I guess in the early phase of transition. Um, 
a lot of countries have had similar, you know, restrictions, Not maybe not in the same things in terms of gender, um, but, I mean, in Australia, in the 70s, a woman couldn't get a credit card without her husband's approval. Um, a judge before I left told me how his wife was in at David Jones and couldn't purchase anything on the card without her husband's approval, so he had to get on the phone and provide that approval. I mean, that's this generation. Um, I just think, you know, there, a lot of countries have restrictions. We just sometimes forget what we used to have to go through. So let's shift gears for a moment here. And how did the Prominenti Society come about and and what have been the most rewarding aspects for you? Uh, I guess it came about because I was always getting inquiries for speaking gigs. And given my job as a lawyer and I'm not um, looking to earn a, a livelihood from speaking, I couldn't always do the events. So people were asking me to provide recommendations um, on other speakers, and it was just taking a lot of time. Um, I was almost a, an agent or an intermediary um, trying to sort this out. Um, I was actually sitting in uh, a Masters of Law class uh, one day, and I thought, let's just start coding this website. Um, so I was sitting in class, I, I think it was arbit- international arbitration law, and I spent those seven hours coding and I shouldn't say this, but by the end of the class, I had a website up and running, um, which was, um, you know, uh, the initial idea was having different women from worldwide. You can search them by name, by category, so their area of expertise or by location. So it's it's almost selfish um, to have it because it's saving my time a lot um, with having to answer inquiries about um, finding speakers. But the most rewarding thing was how quickly it took off and how women worldwide wanted to be part of it, but seeing the organizations that are contacting these women to book them. So it's, um, these women pay to be on the site. I'm not their agent. I don't find them work. I don't, um, uh, you know, uh, advertise them, so to speak, um, other than on socials and on the websites. But I, I do help them with negotiation sometimes because a lot of women can't negotiate money being a lawyer can negotiate so um that's uh, I just love doing it and so often they're like can we give you a percentage for negotiating that fee and I'm like no 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 you, you've paid to be on the website it's it's all part of it this is a fun thing for me and I just love seeing that you're getting paid what you're worth so from talking about negotiation there what, what do you think is is crucial from a negotiating point of view or, or skills that people should learn to become better negotiators Uh, First thing is, I think, organizational psychology, which kind of gives you an insight into reading um, certain behaviors or how to deal with certain types of personality. And the second thing is to to know your material and be more prepared. Um, If someone, if you want to be paid two and a half thousand dollars for a gig and they ask you, what do you want to be paid? You say two and a half thousand dollars and stop women tend to want to keep talking or justify it just stop and let them respond so they're the probably the three tips so as a very busy person you've always liked to give a lot back to the community what is your sort of why behind supporting so many not-for-profit organizations from a governance point of view when you already have a lot on your plate uh I wish I could, to be honest, I have to say no to a lot because of 
being a lawyer, um, I have to make the decision, do I want to be on their board or do I want to act for them or is there already a conflict of interest in me being on the board? So quite often I'm not involved, um, I guess, publicly with them, but I guess it comes back to the same thing with Women Lawyers Queensland. I've got the ability to help. I've got the time. It's an area that interests me, so why not? And I look back to as a kid, you know, we went to kindergarten um, with the CWA, so the Country Women's Association. Um, I had, you know, the volunteers at the library looking after me. I've just always been helped by um, people who are volunteers, and I guess it's almost been subconsciously, you know, looking to, to give back in that way. The, the ladies at the church every Sunday, you know, helping me make, learning how to cook and all that sort of thing. So I guess it's, it's my time now. So why not? So as a very driven and devoted lawyer, have you considered how you can, how you better keep up that intensity and passion long-term? Uh, well, as I said, I'm single, so that makes it a lot easier. Um, I don't have to think about anyone other than myself, but, you know, that could change. Um, you know, if I had a family, I would have to change that, um, my priorities and the level I could commit. So for as long as I can, I want to be able to do this. Um, I've spent this past six weeks in Riyadh getting to know the city but I think I've slept more in the past six weeks than I have in the past 18 years. Uh, Just because I'm still involved in Women Lawyers Queensland and a a couple of other projects, but I just have so much time on my hands and um, it doesn't suit me at all. Uh, So as many projects as I can have, I think is is better. And certainly for those around me, because um, I can be a bit hyperactive at times, so. So having, having that profession as a lawyer comes with a lot of demands and, and quite high stress loads at times. So obviously not at the moment. You, you seem to have a bit more time on your hands. When do you find that sort of Cassandra time and, and how do you balance your personal life with a demanding career? I would always schedule me time. I'd call it Casa time. Um, and usually would be of a, hopefully a Saturday morning or it might even be a Thursday night. And I would actually lock that in my calendar. And I wouldn't see friends. I wouldn't have anything else. And it might be going to the gym for an extra long workout or driving to the coast, um, going for a skateboard, things like that, just where I didn't have to respond to any emails or have any anyone else um, to meet with. Uh, that's what's got me through. But, I mean, I'm an organiser. I schedule calls with my dad. So <laughs> um, I've, I'm one of those with a calendar just to um, keep me on track. With more people being empowered to speak out about mental health, bullying, burnout, and discrimination in the workplace, are we likely to see a Royal Commission on Workplace Wellness in the near future as the duty of care expected of CEOs and leaders heightens? Oh, wow. So I've worked on a couple of Royal Commissions over the past couple of years in Australia and ironically now my lawyer Royal Commission. So that what, those two words have been running around my life the past couple of years. Um, I mean, they've got the one into mental health. Um, I, I don't know if it's a Royal Commission or inquiry that was being called just as I was leaving Australia. But um, I think a lot of education needs to go into it um, to perhaps look at the, the, the issues and see what we can do to fix it. 
um, I'm not sure if one specifically into corporates um, is needed at the moment, but I think um, there does need to be a higher level of support, but also acceptance. Um, and I guess it's almost trite of me to say that because um, I've never actually spoken about my personal dealings with anxiety, depression and things like that because it's not to me it's never a right environment or it's never felt like a right environment to do it. So I think the message does need to shift um, on that because uh, I remember as a junior lawyer I had on no less than two occasions a call from a client saying our CEO has just died. Um, one was from natural causes. He just had a heart attack in the middle of the street from stress. So it's something that needs to be dealt with. But how is the question? I think that needs to be answered first. Yeah, there's still a lot of reactive approach to this at the moment and there needs to be a lot more proactive and that shift is challenging when you've got a whole industry or whole societal culture thing around how we work and when we're in different positions, how does that um, how does that need to look, et cetera. So it's going to take, you know, it's, it's like moving the Titanic. It won't be easy uh, from that That's perspective. It. And I, I think education will be key to it because um, we don't want to trivialize the issue, um, but we want to make sure there's support and resources for anyone who does does need it because we're under continual pressure and stress and most of the time we wouldn't even realize that we're actually under that stress. We're just doing our day-to-day -day life. It's not until you, well, for me now, having a chance to actually sleep, um, wow, how have I been living the past 18 years? Yeah, makes a big difference. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? Um, well, that will be easy because this is my first time living as an expat. Uh, so at age 34, I'm first time expat. And how are you finding that different to say living in Australia? Um, uh, I guess experiencing a different culture that I would never have been immersed in, in Australia. I'm absolutely loving it. It's been six weeks, so I'm still very much in honeymoon phase, but Every day I'm learning something new or learning about historical matters or it, it's just absolutely fascinating and so grateful to have the experience. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Why was the Bay of Pigs disaster such a disaster? How could America have really stuffed that up? And I mean, I know that's nothing to do with life or career. It's completely political and it's from, you know, 40 or 50 years ago. But as a young kid, I just could never understand that. How do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? Uh, I guess it's being aware of, um, you know, my feelings and how my body's positioned. But I um, start to feel a lot less stress in my shoulders and I'm breathing a lot more from my, my stomach as opposed to my chest. And I just feel on, I feel like whatever someone could give to me, I could absolutely conquer it no matter what. Um, it's just that high level of adrenaline, um, coming through. But it's also for me when I get that feeling, making sure I control it. Um, so I'm not, um, you know, racing off doing a million things at once, thinking things through and, and having it progressed. 
So you're talking about before there that you're getting a lot more sleep there. Do you finding that you're able to get into a peak state of mind more often now that you are more recovered and getting more sleep? I think it's it's the opposite, to be honest. Um, because I have so much time on my hands at the moment, um, I guess my discipline, which is one thing that I always really liked about myself, I haven't had to have because it's, oh, sure, you, you've got – three hours to go to the gym in the morning instead of a 45-minute window before your first call and things like that. So I'm hoping once I get settled into my apartment after the Eid holiday, I'll be able to get back more into the the discipline and routine. I'm meeting more people and becoming involved in a few more outside projects. So hopefully that will come back. Your devotion to your art and to what you really believe in is outstanding and I really take you know my hat off to you around your ability to go I want to be great at this and I want to really make a difference and I will do whatever it takes to get there um, I'm feeling very jealous right now that you're over there in Saudi Arabia it, I, I miss the intrigue and the mystique factor of the place and to hear how it's really evolving the whole community is changing and quite rapidly it, it's not easy to change a culture in this sense but it sounds like it's moving really really well and um, I wish you all the best in this project and in future projects there and look forward to seeing how they progress. Perfect thank you so much Craig I really appreciate all of that. This week's Active CEO wellness tip is skill stacking. We're debunking the myth that you need to be an absolute specialist on one single thing and spending just 10, spending 10,000 hours replicating and producing and trying to refine that one certain skill. Now skill stacking is about being a generalist with a difference. You focus on a skill for a period of time, then you find another skill and spend some time on it. You then combine those skills and work on how they can grow as a skill together. You keep stacking skills until you have a depth and breadth of skill that allows you to own your own space and have a skill set that differentiates you from the crowd. If you're just a specialist in one small key area, it's easy for your competition to replicate it and to go another step above you. So you need to build that portfolio of skills that you are known for and own your own space. Thank you for listening to an insightful and powerful conversation with Cassandra Hilbron, Breaking Down Barriers, on the Active CEO podcast. We live in a world of constant change, and if we don't evolve, then we get left behind. Sometimes it is difficult to see the brighter picture when you are working in the business, and you need someone who has a futuristic outlook who can give you the guidance and direction you need. Energy to Perform brings you 25 years of experience coaching and mentoring people to see both the bigger picture and narrow down into what needs your attention now so you can improve your performance. Learn more about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by going to www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. 
That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.